Hey humans, how's it going? She's in Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. I'm very excited because this is the 100th episode and Hey Human is the little podcast that could and keeps on. Uh, it's, it's very cool uh, that I've been able to keep doing this and I owe it all to you all for listening. So thank you very much and thank you for sharing it with your friends and people you know and, and family and all that stuff. Um, it's, it's great. I love doing it. And um, yeah, I just, I'm thrilled. I can't believe we've made it to 100 episodes. Um, and by we, I mean you guys and me, because we are in this together. Before I go into a little detail on this episode, I want to thank David Hall, who came over and helped teach me some very cool engineering tricks that I will be using in upcoming episodes. And uh, I really appreciate that, David. And he also brought over some sound um, deadening panel things that I could put in my little podcast room that I am going to start doing these interviews in instead of the kitchen. So that'll make the sound a little bit more podcasty, I suppose. A um, couple things, I'll, as always, of course, uh, in celebration of the 100th episode, I would love it if you would go to iTunes and rate and review. Super helpful, gets the word out. The reviews that are on there already are sensational, and thank you for everybody that has done that so far. I really appreciate that. Um, the website, of course, has the is heyhumanpodcast.com, and it has the Amazon portal. So far, I've been able to keep Hey Human ad-free, but uh, the Amazon portal does help support Hey Human in its own way. So if you do Amazon shopping, please visit uh, heyhumanpodcast.com and click on that portal on the homepage for Amazon and do your shopping and help support Hey Human. Uh, I'm on social media, Hey Human Podcast. And also on Twitter, Susan Ruthism. And uh, you can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. Um, also, I just want to mention that, of course, I have music out on iTunes as well under Susan Ruth. I think it's on Spotify. Well, I know it's on Spotify. Uh, also under Susan Ruth, if you want to check out my music. And I'm just letting it all out there because it's the 100th episode. Might as well. Um, and SusanRuth.com. Did I say that already? I don't know. The cold Medicine and the memories, they don't, they don't go hand in hand. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, this episode in celebration, I thought I'd go back to the beginning and by the beginning, I meant my beginning and by my beginning, I meant my parents. So, uh, a little while back I interviewed my parents and, um, so it'll be my mom's interview and then my dad's interview on this. Um, so the, the, the episode itself is going to seem kind of long, but it's actually two interviews in one. So um, my mom and dad are, are very hilarious, I think, in their own ways. Um, my mom is very gregarious. Dad's more chill. Um, and uh, it was really delightful to talk to them and hear family stories, um, hear their childhood and the experiences that they had um, moving into adulthood, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it was it was fun for me, and I don't know, maybe it'll be weird for you to hear what my parents are like, but I really, I enjoyed it very much, so maybe for the 100th episode, I was being a little self-serving, but I do, and I say this on um, one of, during one of the interviews um, between my parents, that if you get the chance to sit your parents, your grandparents down 
and ask them their story and their life and record it. It's really, it's really magical to have that, I think. And uh, both my parents have been really supportive of all my creative endeavors. And um, so I really appreciate the fact that they took time out of their incredibly busy retirement schedule. They do more now, I swear, than they ever did before they retired. Um, But I really appreciate that they took the time to talk with me. And I hope you all enjoy it. Um, Yeah, here we go. Happy 100th. Hi, Mom. Hi, Suze. Uh, Welcome to Hey Human Podcast, Nan, but otherwise known as Mom. Mostly, usually known as Mom to me, but not to them. Welcome. Hi. Hi. You were born in... In California. California. Yeah. And you grew up uh, the daughter and a military daughter. Yes, and we moved around a whole lot until the war came along. Okay, and uh, you have some really great stories of your traversing around. There's one in particular that you posted on Facebook, the Guam story. You want to retell that one? Cause it's oh, a the Guam one. story on Facebook? Well, that's pretty late in life. I was 14 by that time. Okay. I was eight at Pearl Harbor. Well, let's talk about that first then. Yeah, you well, direct me. I'll just follow. Well, I had to stay behind when my parents went to to the new duty station on Oahu, and uh, that my parents had to leave me behind because I w- had braces, and orthodontia, you know, has to keep regular hours, so uh, they had to find me a new dentist before I could join them in Hawaii. In in Oahu, yeah. Okay. In Honolulu. So I was eight and stayed behind until they found the dentist. And I went to Hawaii first class on the Matsonia, which was pretty good because Mama had gone third class. <laughs> What's the Matsonia? Matsonia was a, a, a very famous ship that plied the waters between San Francisco and Hawaii. Cool. Yeah, it was part of the Matson line, and that's why it was called the Matsonia. And they, would, they had wonderful menus, hand-painted. Hand, well, it was just a great trip, and I was eight, and so I was. there was a stewardess assigned to, to uh, Care for you. watch out for me. And while I was there, I met a very charming <laughs> lieutenant in the Army who escorted me to movies on board with the consent of my chaperone. And so I was always picking up handsome young men at the age of eight. I didn't work so well when I got older, but it was fine at that age. The thing that was fun about the trip took five days to get there, so I saw a lot of movies. Yeah. And I get there, and I was there, oh, maybe a month. No, not quite a month, maybe three weeks, two weeks. Uh-huh. When I got up to go to Sunday school one morning, and it was very quiet. And Mama picked up the phone to call the neighbor's kid who was going to ride with us to Sunday school. And uh, it was very, no phone service, which was very odd. So Mama screamed, this is an emergency. I need an emergency. <laughs> so it wasn't an emergency, but they put her through anyway because I guess she sounded authoritarian. To put her through to your dad? To the, no, to the person down the street whose daughter was coming with us. Well, needless to say, we didn't get to Sunday school that morning. That was December 7th, and it was 8 o'clock in the morning, and there were strange things going on. So... uh, What do you remember? Well, I remember running up and down saying, isn't this fun, Mommy? (laughs) 
because you didn't have to go to Sunday school? <laughs> no, I mean, there was so much going on. It was just that there were people all over the place. And, you know, Mommy didn't think it was so much fun. No. But, uh, and your father was in the harbor, was he not? No, he was not. Where was he? The, he was in a, a small fleet of ships that were en route between... Pearl Harbor and Wake Island, and they were halfway between wow. when both Wake and Pearl Harbor were kind of destroyed, and um, so they escaped. And he being a he was rear the, no, he was Red. not. No, he was not I, then. He was a lieutenant. Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was. He eventually he, became. He eventually became what they call a Portuguese rear admiral, which is all brass and no gold, which was a, an honorary thing they gave him when he retired for being such a wonderful naval officer. I see. So, Had he reached a high rank? But the, what? He, well, he reached the next rank below that, oh, okay. which was captain okay. at that time. They so did, they, did, they had only two Commodores in the Navy at that time, and they were grandfathered. I mean, they were in there forever. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So what was your question, hon? Uh, so all this was going on, and, and grandfather was out in the... He was out at sea. He, so he missed all the hubbub. And I assume, what did they turn around? What did they do? Oh, they, they did not turn around and come back for a while. They waited for orders. Yeah. And they eventually came back. But the, the thing that was so interesting is, of course, immediately we were put on blackout. Uh-huh. And we lived right next door to that an was, arm. That was so that they, you wouldn't be a target, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, indeed. And they had no idea that they weren't going to invade, so they sent uh, Marines around to all over the place to uh, guard various places and watch streets and so forth. Mm-hmm. And um, we lived right next door to an army fort, and not a shot was fired from there, but I guess because no planes really came over it, so they couldn't really fire a shot. But what I remember was... my. And this is a story I had on my blog, I think, if I remember, about Pearl Harbor, that that night there was a knock on the door, and mom, oh, mama, mama's friend, the, the, the mother of the daughter that mm. was going to go with me, was terrified and didn't know what to do, so mama said we would stay overnight at her house. So we were down there, and there was a knock on the door, and here on the doorstep were the, just the grungiest-looking young men you ever saw in your life. I mean, they were, their faces were black and their clothes were dirty and, you know, and they said that they were Marines and they had been sent to check up and make sure we were safe. One of them was 19 and the other one had lied. He was only 17. And the two of them had swum a thousand yards under burning oil from the USS Oklahoma, which sank in Pearl Harbor. And they were, you know, that night were sent out to do duty on the... Oh, my God. Yeah, you bet. So um, Mama looked at them, and she said, you're Marines, right? She said, they said, yes, ma'am. And he, she said, you guys, she says, Marines don't look like that. She says, come in, take a shower. This is in somebody else's house, mind you. Yes. And she, That's and grandma, though. I remember grandma's a ball buster. Yeah, yeah, grandma was. And uh, so they scrounged up cocky uniforms because, of course, the Marines didn't wear navy blues yeah, sure. or whites yeah. uh, for for them. And They uh, swam under burning oil. A thousand feet. A thousand yards. A thousand yards, yeah. Under burning oil That's to escape. Insane. 
Yeah. And then they were put on guard duty. Of course. Yes. That's They're the Marines. They're Marines. Semper so, Fi. Yeah. So <laughs> they were all cleaned and pressed, and they were much happier. And it, and um, she, my mama expressed some concern for them. She said, are you sure you guys are all right after all that? She didn't quite put it that way, of course. Sure. She was a little more elegant. But they said, oh, yes, ma'am, we're Marines. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, but I will not forget that soon. And then we used to sit out. During the blackouts, we sit out and in the evenings, and there was a. Uh, we lived in a, a an alley that had little cottages on either side, and one of the cottages was infested by some local police. And they were Hawaiians, of mm -hmm. course, so of course they sang and played musical instruments. So every night they would come out on their porch and they would sing and play the ukulele. And this is all in the dark, mind you. And we would sit out on the porch and listen to them. And we also would listen to the radio because that was the only communication we had. And there were no lights. And uh, I remember Mama used to hand us, hand me anyway, her cigarette so that I could make oh. fiery circles. <laughs> Yeah, it was very interesting. We, of course, had the longest Christmas vacation in the world. We didn't go back to back to school until January because, didn't this remember, it was December 7th, so that's quite a while, because they had to dig trenches and, and get gas masks ready for kids and so forth. And I have a picture of me in a gas mask. It's on my blog. It's really hysterical. Wow. What's your blog? My blog is called Aunt Nan's Eclectic Ink and Blabula. Dude, that's not long or anything. I'll put a link to it on heyhumanpodcast.com. Yeah, um, well, it, I haven't kept it up much, but that story's on there. And stories about your grandmother and your great-grandmother are on there. Who was also a ball and badass. Oh, yeah. She was what we used to call in the vernacular a freewheeling bitch. Yeah, God bless. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, she was something else. I mean, you've got such, some weird genes going on there, kid. Clearly. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. The women in our family are pretty badass, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 No buddies. No, but also we're world famous, most of us. Yeah, you have quite the lineage. Yeah, and if you Google my, my academic name, you'll find it. I'm still cited in some things, even though what I wrote was, what, now 40 years ago? Oh, or sure. So. We'll get to that. But we'll ancient that history is still, still ancient. Still ancient history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, tell the Guam story, because it's so fun. Oh, the Guam story? Yeah. Well, when I was 14, Mama, I came home from school, and Mama said, go pack. We're leaving in 24 hours for Guam. And I said what? <laughs> she said, we're leaving for 24 hours for Guam and we have to get... In, our... in 24 hours or four? In 24 oh, okay, yeah. In 24 hours. Uh -huh. Now this was in 1946. It wasn't very long after the war. Uh -huh. So it was, it was, I... I were you I'm... in uh, in Oahu until the war ended then? You, no, or... we were in Oahu for until the August of 1942 when finally we came home because daddy was transferred to San Francisco for a while. Mm -hmm. So we came home, <clears throat> or transferred to another ship anyway, and mm -hmm. it was not going to be going out of out mm -hmm. of Oahu, so so we came back to the mainland. Mm -hmm. And that's a funny story, and too. And your, your father was quite quite famous in the Navy, was he not? He wrote a, some sort of song or something? Oh, yeah. He, he, well, he, he, he was quite a character, but getting back to leaving... Uh, what took, was the remember, song? Just really quick. Uh, Navy, where Navy was the name of it, and okay. I think it's still published. Some, you know, it's there somewhere. Somebody 
I don't think anybody's ever getting royalties on it because he donated. They donated the royalties. He and the lady that wrote it with him. Yeah. But the um, the uh, trip to Hawaii. Remember, I said took five days. Yes. Took nineteen days to come home in a convoy oh. zigzagging across the Pacific. Because they didn't want to get hit by anything. Why would they? Well, yeah, because you you don't do a direct route if if the Japanese are yeah. out to get you know. Yeah, sure. And there were mines and things. Oh my gosh. And of course, were by you then, aware of that kind of stuff? Oh yeah, I was. After all, eight and nine years old, yeah. I was no kid. I mean, sure. I was not stupid. No, I understand, but I don't know the extent to which parentals hide things like that from their children. Well, they couldn't hide it very well, honey, because yeah. <laughs> you know it was war was everywhere. Yeah. And um, so you serpentined your way back. Yeah, and uh, so we can. We landed. <laughs> we landed at San Francisco, and Mama steps to the dock to the public phone, which they had in those days. Believe it or not, they oh, yeah. really had phones on every corner. Yeah, believe it. And <laughs> not a Starbucks. They've turned into Starbucks. Yeah, right. <laughs> there was a larval stage of Starbucks. Yes, actually. Right. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, Anyway, so we get there, and she's calling up my grandmother, Bam Bam, we called her. Bam Bam. Yep. And um, Mama said, hello, and Bam Bam said, hello, and Mama said, can, uh, can you feed two more for dinner? And Bam Bam said, of course, who is it? So we had, we, for some reason, they had had an extra, there's rationing, remember. Sure. They had an extra pork chop, so we managed to get over to Berkeley, to the house, and we spent the next several years there until 1945 or so when Mama and Daddy bought a house in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And uh, because Daddy, by that time, had come back to serve as the uh, head of um, training at in San Francisco. So he, he was out of the range of the firing by them because the war was over. Mm -hmm. But uh, they bought the house, and, and uh, we were there until the summer of 46 when we went to Guam for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. It was... Fascinating. Yeah, I've never been to Guam, but I've, I've heard stories from Well, it's from not you, the course. same. When we got there, you know, there was still there were still soldiers in the hills, and there were pri Japanese prisoners in trucks going by all the time, because they did a lot of the of the hard labor, and they were really happy too, too because they got eighty. Who was 80 happy? cents a day. The Japanese prisoners, they earned their board and room in 80 cents a day. And that was more than a Japanese cabinet minister made really? <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Yeah, but they had to do hard labor. So Well, hard labor being they had to build the houses for the okay. military and so forth. Nothing yeah. very dis nothing. They weren't treated poorly. Oh, no. And they, they were mostly glad to be out of it, you know, yeah. because, and I remember... A lot one, different than what was probably going on elsewhere, like the internment camps and things. Yeah. Which... Well, the internment camps were... Uh, one thing that Franklin Delano Roosevelt's... Uh, was mistaken about. He's, they should never have done that. No, of course but, not. And of course, the Japanese internment camps were unspeakable. Yes. But uh, well, I remember on Guam, while they were building the houses after the the notorious hijacking. Should I tell the? Yeah. Well, of course, when we got there, 
we had to stay in the bachelor officers' quarters, which were huge elephant quonsets with two floors. I mean, they were just to me. Uh, and it was an unused one, of course, because they put all the families of the officers' families in there, and they were building houses like mad. But they ran out of plywood before they finished the houses in the place where we were going to be. For the enlisted men, the officers, of course, were going to wait till the enlisted men housing was built, and then the enlisted men could get their families over. You see, and uh, <clears throat> and in those days they still had houseboys mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So, uh, which ties into the story eventually, anyway. But the uh, the plywood ran out, and they wouldn't get any. Nobody would let them requisition anymore. The naval supply didn't have any, and nobody had any plywood so to finish the, finish the houses. couldn't finish building the houses. Couldn't finish building the houses, and the families couldn't come over. And the natives were getting restless, you know. Yeah. So um, <laughs> one day, Mama and the boss's wife went, were at the commissary, and they came out, and they saw a semi-truck from the Army uh, clearly labeled from the army with a flat tire on the trailer and the idiots who were driving it unhooked the tractor and drove off to fix to go get a tire to go get a tire so mama and and aunt grace went into the back into the commissary and commandeered the phone and called up <laughs> the base called up the naval base yeah the naval base where you know and uh, Within, oh, I'd say six or seven minutes, a, a tractor pulls up. A, a tire, tractor. Navy tractor pulls <laughs> up with a tire, changes the tire, hitches up the trailer, and drives off. They stole the Army's wood. They hijacked the, the plywood. But the houses got finished. That's hilarious. Yeah. No, and to this day, nobody even... Unless they probably found the rotting hulk of the semi-trailer when they built the road. The road didn't go all the way around the island in those days. It stopped where our housing area was on yeah. the one side and in a village called Merida on the other side. Mm -hmm. And in the map I put on my Facebook page, yeah. you can see where that is. Yeah. Merida. And there's a gap of maybe five miles there that didn't have a road. So everything that was useless or one wanted to dispose of went up into that little area between mm. Merida and our housing area, including the semi. Yes. So, so That's a great story. Yeah, that, that was funny. Mm. And, and nobody, of course, at the commissary saw a thing, although it was interesting because there apparently had been quite a group watching all this go on. Yes. But nobody saw anything when the Army came back with the tractor and the trailer was gone. They went, mm, I oh don't know gosh. what ever happened I to them. I hope they didn't get court-martialed Well, I don't think they all. would because it wasn't, you know. Yeah. But they probably were told, never, 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 never leave a semi-load of plywood alone again. I mean, yeah. they didn't post the guard. That was stupid. Yeah, and especially with Grandma running around. <laughs> oh, yeah, Grandma. Well, one of the things in Honolulu I remember, Grandma, but going backtracking a little bit with Grandma, was that everybody who had a firearm was asked to go down to the police station and tell the police that, that they had it. And um, <clears throat> so Mama dutifully went down to the police station, and she stands in line to present her firearm, and it's a twenty-two single-shot Colt. That my grand, my grandmother, not yours, but my grandmother was a crack shot with. Is mother, that uh, Helen? Susan. The oh, one my, you're named after. Oh, great grandma Susan. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. She was a sharpshooter? 
Oh, yeah, she was a champion shot. Of course she was. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah, so she, uh, so Mama turns the gun in, and the guy inspects it, and he hands it back, but first, like, with a little bow, and he says, Madam, keep this for your own protection. And Mama says she had a flash of herself standing on the doorstep with a pile of bullets saying, okay, boys, line up. This only fires one shot at a time. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. hilarious. Oh, man. So how long were you in Guam? Two and a half years. Yeah. Two and, and a half of the longest who years. Who had the Coca-Cola with a bug in it? Mama. Okay. She had half a bug. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, all bug would have been better, but half a bug. Yeah. So she went down to the Coca-Cola place and negotiated, and we got 10 free cases of Coke delivered to our house every week. And the kids, you know, we didn't have anything else, so we drank the Coke, you know. Yeah, amazing all your teeth didn't fall out of your head. Well, they almost did. I went to Guam with not a single cavity, even though I'd had braces for five years. And I came back from Guam with 32. Holy moly! Mm -hmm. That's insane. Mm -hmm. Wow. Little ones, mostly, but still 32 of them. So drink your milk, kitties. Yeah, well... Or, we know, didn't have milk. Fortified see. stuff. Well, we didn't have milk. Mm. We didn't have fresh vegetables. We I didn't never, have it. I didn't get a single cavity my whole life. So. Yeah, well, you just knock on wood, honey, because there's still years of your life to go. I guess that's true. Yeah, you guys, you, you, I remember you saying that, that you didn't, growing up, you didn't have, because things were rationed. and. Well, things were rationed during the war, but we managed anyway. And, you know, then and you're most an of the child. time. Yeah. And, and we managed rationing for the United States wasn't anywhere near what it was like for, say, Europe. Great Britain, because yeah. because uh, we didn't have to be rationed. It, it, we were rationed because it was a good public public sure. uh, whatever you want to call it a PO, PO yeah. move. So you went back to California after right, Yeah, I lived in Berkeley. Yeah, and uh, finished up your high school. Uh, well, first thing, I finished up my high school. Where did I do? Um, Came back to Berkeley, stayed there for a while, then uh, went to Berkeley High. I had started high school in in uh, in Guam. Went to Berkeley High, but I was it was my. We also went to Coronado, California, and I was in high school there for a while. And came up to Bremerton in Washington really? State. Stayed was in high school there for a while. I didn't know that. So I was, and and there was so that was. Guam, Berkeley, Coronado, and Bremerton, and then Berkeley again. How is that as a young woman uh, moving from place to place? It's supposed it's to be not hard. fun. No. Well, at least in Berkeley, I knew people. Yeah. And that's, the the, that's where I graduated. Okay. From In the class of 1950, in the beautiful new auditorium we inaugurated, it was really nice. When did archaeology and classics and Greek well, mythologies... I had, when I was a little kid, or when we, when we were living there, uh, when, well, when I was a really little kid and living with Annie Quayle, Annie Quayle used to read to me. Tell me what Quayle's actual... Somebody asked me this the other day. I said, what was your Aunt Quayle? My great-aunt Quayle was a children's book writer and an awesome little old lady. She... Um, I don't know what her actual name is. It's not Helena Ann. Ah, I wondered if it was Helen, but I couldn't remember. Helena. Helena Ann. And how did she get quail as a moniker? Because when she was born, and they they looked at her and said she looked like a little brown quail, so she was quail ever since. Okay. She was legally quail uh, 
in the end, she she used quail all the time, and, yeah. and professionally she was quail. So her books are written as quail. Quail Hawkins, yeah, oh. I, yeah. I I have a couple of them. I I come across them every once in a while in used bookstores, and mm-hmm. I buy them. Um, but yeah, she's got a great yeah uh, a great legacy there. Yeah, she wrote, and she was also uh, the world's expert on children's books for a while. And wrote the Encyclopedia Britannica article for one year, I remember. I mean, people from all... Uh, Wasn't she friends with Beverly Cleary? Oh, yes. Beverly Cleary's 100 now. Would you believe it? I, I, there was an article about her in the paper. It was wonderful last Sunday. So cool. Sunday, yeah, in the book review section. I'll have to it's show funny, it to you. When I tell people about who my my family has rubbed shoulders with and been friends with, like Grandpa, right, was in, was in the academy with Heinlein. Robert Heinlein. Yeah, yeah, like, what? Yeah. Well, I told you, Susan, as you were growing up, I told you that nothing ever happens of consequence in this world that doesn't involve a Hawkins, however, peripherally. Yeah. For their own Kevin Bacon. For the last man hung in Suffolk County was a Hawkins. The what? (laughs) The last man hung in Suffolk County was a Hawkins. Suffolk County, New York, Long Island was a Hawkins. But I don't think he was related to us. Was he one of us? I don't think he was related to us. There's a hand. It's probably related to us. Well, there was my cousin Mary, your second cousin Mary, who was living in Dallas, was babysat the kids of the policeman who was shot when... Kennedy was shot. Mm. So that's yeah, the so kind of thing that happens so to us. Bad luck is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> we just have strange degrees. We just of have strange degrees well, we have, of separation. We have yeah. a lot of famous people within the family as well. But it's just oh, kind yeah. of fun to know that, you know, that my my big brother broke the Hugo of. No, he didn't break it, honey. He, he teased on it. Oh, he teased it. He Jeremy says he broke it. teased on it. He didn't break it. He didn't even scratch it. He uh, would just put it in his mouth and chewed on it. Okay. Well, that's Frank different. Herbert's Hugo. Oh, it was we, Frank Herbert's Hugo. Frank Herbert of Dune fame. It yeah. wasn't Heinlein's. No, Heinlein, no. No, no. In Heinlein, he mistook he mistook the bidet for the toilet at oh the Heinlein's gosh. house. But, you know, he was only a little kid. Oh, what my can gosh. I? That's so funny. <laughs> So I did, I missed, uh, I just was telling somebody the story, uh, and I, I mixed those two stories together. I didn't realize it was Herbert. All the stories over the, you know, couple decades get so convoluted well, that, you know, and as stories do and as memories do, that it's really interesting to just sit down and, not to call you a horse, but right. from the horse's mouth, to hear exactly. If you can possibly get your grandparents to tell you about their lives, take do it, it. Do it and t- record it. Absolutely. Because, like, my grandfather who invented OSS, which is the Army Secret Service in, in his day. This is Cox? Yeah. Yeah. They, and uh, you can you can read about it. He was a, he Alexander a, Bacon Cox, and he's you can Google him, and it's Cox with an E. You can Google him, and he, he turns up to be quite an interesting character. Yeah. So he, uh, <clears throat> but he invented OSS. But anyway, we wanted, when he lived, in his last few years with with your grandmother and grandfather, he um, we kept trying to get him to tell the stories, and he would never never tell them. And we've always wanted to know some of the stories, and you know we didn't want him to divulge any secrets, sure. you know, but we just wanted to know what happened. I think it's, it's yeah, it's a good because, thing to have well, the family stories. For instance, we always suspected that the U.S. government knew exactly 
what was going to happen at Pearl Harbor. They didn't know they wouldn't invade, but they knew that Pearl Harbor was a target sure. uh, because they broke the code. And he, your grandfather had been in um, Washington as in Army Intelligence. They'd recalled him, and he was there, and he resigned from that because they wouldn't listen to him. And, and because... He kept and he kept writing Mama and telling her to come home from Hawaii, and this was before the war. And when Pearl Harbor happened, he was writing his daughter. Yeah, saying get the hell out of there. Yeah, yeah, but never saying why. Yeah, but you know, inventing all sorts of reasons why she shouldn't be there, and that was why. Well, we've always been convinced that they that they they knew that this was going to happen and when it was going to happen. Was he the one that was friends with um, the woman that? Uh, Nellie Bly? Nellie Bly. Well, no, he wasn't exactly friends but with her. But he helped her somehow? Yes, he got her out of Paris at one point when she was uh, trying to get home. And we have a letter somewhere yeah. That, yeah. that thanks it's, him for that. It's and, well um, and safe. And we also have a letter somewhere that, that mentions, it, it was written on what we used to call Armistice Day, which was always the 11th of November. And that was the day that uh, the armistice was signed for the First World War. And your grandfather received the, the original telegram about the, that it had been done. Wow. I hope that's in a safe. What's, no, Daddy, when he cleaned out the, the room he uses for building things. And My Daddy? Fl yeah. Yeah. Fly fly fishing and stuff yeah. he moved everything and god knows it's in a pile somewhere down in the basement oh my god we, you people freak me out <laughs> well he freaked me out because i i was supposed to be clearing it out and i was taking my sweet time though and he decided to just do it so he took everything out and there's several things that had gone missing that but they're down there now. somewhere like the oed is down there somewhere i don't know what that is but Oxford English Dictionary? Oh, okay. Good heavens, woman. Well, I know what the Oxford English Dictionary is. I don't know your, you know, hashtag slang, you modern woman. The OED. Well, it's always called the OED, and, well, the, and the classical dictionary is the OCD. So that's to distinguish them. Yeah, well, I'm sure someone with OCD made sure of that. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, so you're back in Berkeley. You've graduated from high school after five different schools. Well, but in, in between your... was Guam, you know, mm -hmm. Guam, yeah. Yeah, back in Berkeley. But yeah. what uh, what drew you to the classics and to mythology? And no, I started things... to tell you, Annie Quayle used to read to me, oh. and one of the books she read to me was The Tales of Troy, Patriot mm -hmm. Columns, Adventures yeah. of Odysseus and the Tales of Troy. And I was hooked, so I always read anything about the Greeks. I read Greek poetry. Well, I was allowed... When we lived with Bam Bam and Quail, I was allowed Park Blanche at the library, which was pretty vast. And and uh, nobody said I couldn't read anything, so I read things. I read the Greek poetry and translation. I read Anais Nin. I love Anais Nin. <laughs> yeah, but a 10 was a little it's over my racy. head. Well, it was a little racy for Yeah, it was over my head, too. Sure. <laughs> I read uh, Brave New World by oh, Elvis yeah. Huxley. Yes, and I read books. The Fountainhead. Oh. And I read, you know, all these things when I, between the ages of 10 and, and uh, about 13. Shaping you to be a little intellect. And The New Yorker every week. Yes, yeah. sure. Yeah, so shaping me to be whatever... Yeah, but I always went for and and the Greek plays in translation. Gilbert Hyatt had a, a three volume set which I own now, that I read. Uh huh. So I so always was really interested. So, but I never had and of course when when I was in college I took all the classes I could but I never had the opportunity to study it in depth like I did when I got to the University of Washington. 
So yeah, and your PhD is in drama arts. Drama arts, but your specialty was actually turned out to be classical archaeology. Yeah, so which has a lot to do with drama. Explain arts, what classical archaeology is, because when I tell people that you are archaeologist, classics person, Greek and. And I would say you know a lot about Egypt too, at least the mythologies. I don't well, know about the architecture, I know but some, some, a little bit about Egypt, not enough. But I, a lot I about like, the Greeks. But You're... I know how to find out. Yeah, I know a lot about the Greeks, and and not so much about the Romans because I wasn't so interested in the Romans, but I was fascinated by the Greeks, and um, I well, I was sort of in love with Odysseus. So <laughs> yes. Well, I'm sure many were. Yeah. Um, I remember you telling me, unless I'm remembering incorrectly, which seems to happen sometimes, but um, did I paint that right there? Or is that you? This one you did. I thought it, that looks like me. Yeah. I remember you telling me that the first time you arrived in Greece, you didn't need any maps or anything. It was like you would come back to where you had yep. always been. Where I'd always been, yeah. And it was really interesting because when I got to Mycenae, which was where Agamemnon was king, I knew that's where I'd been. Mm. And of course, that's a little woo-woo for some people, but not for me. You know, I believe in that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, it's the way it is. I, yeah. you know. Yeah. What is it about Greece that so entices you? Do you think? I guess memory? it's just muscle memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Odysseus is your favorite. He was my favorite. Yeah. Yep. He's always been my favorite. Why? Well, Odysseus was one of the kings that went to rescue Helen from Troy. Right. And uh, but he was kind of an um, outlier. He was different from most of them. And uh, he angered Poseidon at one point. So Poseidon made it very difficult for him to get home after the war. So the war took 10 years, and there was an additional 10 that he took on his journey home for the Odyssey, and <clears throat> he uh, he had lots of adventures with his his men and so forth, but it, like with the Cyclops and mm -hmm. stuff. So, uh, but he's always been in my heart mm. ever since I was because he was he did things he did interesting things like. Escape from the Cyclops by clinging underneath a ram, by hanging onto its wool, and things like that. You know, they fascinated me as a little girl. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. And I still like him. <laughs> yeah. Well. So if you had it, like when I asked Dad earlier in his interview, I asked him, um, he's always told me that if he could start all over again, what he would study, and he said biology. He which, wanted to be a marine biologist, I think. Yeah, and what about you, though? What would, if you were to Oh, do if, I, if I had it to do all over again, and mm -hmm. I knew what I know now. Yeah, and I, know, I, would, I already know you don't want kids, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, enough of that. <laughs> no, uh, I, I would probably be a Bronze Age archaeologist if mm. I could. Mm-hmm. And along with, you know, everything else I learned, I studied Mycenaean Greek, which was those the tablets that, uh, that Ventress and Chadwick deciphered. And uh, then, you know, well, and then Homeric Greek and Classical Greek and Archaic Greek. And uh, you, but you know how to read Ancient Greek? I did, you, once. Yeah, well, I mean, you don't really use it anymore. With so. the help of a dictionary and yeah. maybe occasionally a trot. yeah. I don't know what a trot is. A trot is a, a translation. Oh, okay. 
There you go again. Your, yeah. With your hashtags. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, that's what we used to call it. Did you get to go on digs? Oh, not officially, but I used to get to watch them in the Agora when I was in Greece yeah. and, or wherever. I, oh, and in Pylos, I got to go down into the into the dig house and see all the artifacts. And a the, the couple of the ladies, one of whom is world-famous Bronze Age archaeologist at the moment, and the other one teaches in Walla Walla, they were had this object and they couldn't figure out what it was. It was a long skinny thing and it looked like it had a prong on it. And I'm looking at it and they they said, we can't figure out what this would be used for. I said, it's a tapestry needle. And they looked at each other and they looked at me and by golly, bingo. <laughs> so I was always doing that, you know. <laughs> one time <laughs> one time I was in the archaeology in the museum, you know, the National mm -hmm. Museum, and in the basement they would let scholars read the stones that they had there. And one of these scholars who was <clears throat> in uh he was leading the other half of the of of the American School summer sessions from mine when I was in Greece in 74. And <clears throat> so I'm walking past and I'm looking at his what he's doing, and he said, I just can't figure out. He says, I know there's something about this. I can't, you know, and, and it's just, and I'm standing up. He's sitting down at the window. I'm standing up, and I'm the light is different. And I look at it, and I said, well, it's a palimpsest, which means, in case you didn't know. Well, I know what a palindrome is. Palimpsest is something that's been written over something else. Oh, cool. So if they got tired of something, they would erase it yeah. and write over it. Sure. Like they do that with, with Paintings manuscripts and, and everything yeah. else. Sure. So this was on stone, and that's what was giving him fits because the way he was looking at it, it looked the, the, the cuts that made the letters were in the wrong place. Mm. And so he about jumped up and kissed me at that point. Because <laughs> I had just, but you know, that sort of I thing. I love when, how when you said that word and you looked at me with that look that I got so often in my childhood, uh, which is, if you don't know that word, you better damn well know it by the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I will get back to you. <laughs> yes, there'll be a quiz there'll later. There'll be a quiz later, and there was every time. Um, Wow, that's so cool. What did so when you taught the you taught at um, SPU? SPU, Seattle Pacific. Yeah, yeah, and what did you teach when you were there? Uh, I was an instructor in the art department, teaching art history for seven years. And one year, my friend Christina went on sabbatical so she could finish her PhD, <clears throat> and um, so I got to take her classes, which included. You mean Greek, give them or take them? Teach them. Teach them. Yeah included Greek and ancient history and uh, so that was cool that's cool not to bring me up because you know this is about I've you. already brought you I up. know but I'm just yes you've already brought me up well done well done um, <laughs> tell the story about me uh, the year I was at the American school <laughs> go ahead the year one year in when we were all in Greece and you were a very small child yes you were three you decided one morning that you would choke on a piece of bread. And everybody was standing around going, I said, I said to your father, I said, well, pick her up by her feet and shake her. Ah, dip her in the water. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he picked <laughs> you up Achilles. by your feet and shook you and yeah. the bread fell out. That was Achilles' joke. Give me some credit there. The Not yet. We were at Sunion, you're still three, 
how you managed to live that long, I do not understand. Anyway, we were all looking over here, and all the guards were looking over there, and we were wondering what was on, so we wandered over, and they said, the guards all gestured, stop, stop, don't move. So we stopped and waited, and pretty soon one of them reached down and pulled up, guess who, had been climbing up the 300-foot face of the cliff by herself. <laughs> Still do that. <laughs> And got to the top, and they they just grabbed you because they you know they but they everybody had been afraid. All the guards that were standing there looking over, they were scared to say anything for fear that you'd lose your footing. So yeah, big. little mountain goat. But you know somebody protects you. I think. Yeah, I've nearly died or died several times. It's not your time to die yet. Yeah, I know that there's some weird guardian angel that kind of protects us because I remember I know sometimes I'm getting ready to go somewhere and <clears throat> for some reason I don't go for maybe 10 minutes after I was supposed to go and in front of me is a hideous accident which I would have been involved in sure. if I'd been there I've 10 minutes earlier yeah and so I think there really is something to that well, let's hope so let's knock on wood for that mm. um all right so let's push forward you um you have so many crazy stories, and I know. But did I ever um, tell you about the time I was on the football team at Coronado High? No. No, I was. A, I was warming the bench. Is that a euphemism, you dirty girl? No, <laughs> no, of course not. And he, and uh, I had on the jersey and the pads and the whole nine yards, and we were we were parodying the football game as as uh, uh, powder puffs or whatever in, in halftime or yeah. something. But the quarterback at that at that high school was about two feet tall. And he was very elusive, oh. and he could. I saw him make runs that other quarterbacks would never be able to make. I always wondered what happened to him. Oh, do you remember his name? No. Oh, so you retired. But I'll, wait, I do want to touch um, on the fact that you, uh, you're an you're an incredibly good artist. You're you're an exceptional artist, I think, and you're one of those that can look at something, and then mimic it. Perfectly. You've edited books. You've uh, illustrated books. Well, illustrated now, I think it's 16 or 17 books. I've done illustrations for. Some of them I just had two or three illustrations in them, and some of them I did all the illustrations. Yeah, art and architecture is one that pops in my brain. Art and architecture in the... In the art, art it's and archaeology in the ancient, ancient world. world. That was the one I edited and did all the drawings. I typeset that one too. They are a poet. You've written tons of poetry. Yeah. Many are Greek focused, ancient yeah. Greek focused. And now you focus a lot of your time on art. Yeah, mixed media art. It's fun. It's a, I never met an art supply I didn't like. No shit. <laughs> you're, you're, you have a lot of art supplies. Um, yes, and you teach art and I teach class workshop type classes. You mm -hmm. know, just afternoons or sure. all day or whatever uh, in mixed media and right now i'm addicted to stencils and and uh shiny thing shiny paint mm, I don't know she's why. one third salmon though so. yeah <laughs> yeah yes. where, where where this is my earliest memory actually okay when i was about two and a half or three mm -hmm. i remember i was out of the house living with my grandmother and grandfather in El Paso because my parents were in Panama and I couldn't go because I had some ridiculous kind of anemia and I had to stay where the doctor was. And at that time I had what we called a criada, 
who was a me Mexican nursemaid, mm -hmm. Soledad, who was wonderful. And Soledad had scolded me for something, and I was out sitting on this side. Well, maybe I'd lost her scissors. I think that was it. She had, could get some now. You've got yeah. 50 pairs here. <laughs> well, there's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she was cross with me, and I was out sitting on the stirb cone in front of the house, and I looked up, and here comes, I kid you not, down the street, and this was on an army base in El Paso, mind you. It wasn't in town or anything. It comes this cart with a woman in what <clears throat> I later discovered was Mycenaean dress, but I didn't know it at the time. It was a, a blouse with embroidery at the And where were you? And, you were in El Paso? In Paso, Texas. Okay. Mind you. Yeah. And she, had a, she was in a cart, and the cart was being pulled by... I think it was a lion, as I remember. She's coming along. I'm sorry, what? She's coming along in this car. No, no, backtrack. It was being pulled by a lion? I think so. Okay. Uh, now, this, yeah, I'm, you know. I'm, now I'm working with you. I'm there. <laughs> and here she comes. <clears throat> and she stops the cart in front of me and hands me a pair of scissors and drives on. Whoa, that gives me the shiver. Yes, well, I, you can see why I remember it. But I cannot, I cannot explain it at all but that i i swear on twenty three thousand stacks of bibles that that's what i remember and <clears throat> i took the scissors into the house and gave them the scissors and i did not tell her what where i had gotten them but i just you know <clears throat> you can tell i'm still you know even now yeah wow that's a great story but Apple doesn't fall very far from the tree, Ma. Yeah, well, I... I the wackadoodle stories. It's, well, that was my earliest memory. So I, I've oh. always thought that that person in the cart driven by a lion... I later found out there was a goddess called Kybele that had a cart driven by lions. Really? And I'm wondering if that wasn't some sort of thing that came down from Greece and so forth, you know? Before you from Mycenae, knew. Yeah. From Mycenae and all. Yeah, before so I, cool. And I, I was a horrible little kid to poor old Soledad. I used to go on my tricycle and disappear, and she didn't know where I was. And my most poor thing, when I was about four, she took me to church one Sunday, and she was a Catholic, of course, being But you Mexican. guys were Episcopalian, yeah? Yeah, well, she took me with her. Yeah. Well, she had to mind me. She yeah, wanted to go sure. to church. Yeah, That's totally. Yeah. And at that time, I was bilingual. Yeah. So uh, the priest is doing the priestly thing and they're slinging the censer around and singing the mass. And I stood up on the pew and sang La Cucaracha. <laughs> oh, my. You're like a drunk uncle. Worse. So Worse. And the priest stopped the whole thing and pointed at me and said, get that child out of here. Poor Soledad. She was afraid to go back to that church. She had to change churches. Oh, Mom, that's terrible. Oh, yeah. But I was, El my, Diablo. I was, El Diablo. Uh, Your grandfather used to uh, inflict discipline with a leather slipper. Mm-hmm. And I was four, five, six, something like five, maybe four, because I was still in a crib, I think. And I had <clears throat> been told I couldn't cross the street, but the gas station across the street was giving away balloons. Ah, classic. Uh, that well, I couldn't sit down for several hours. Mm. <laughs> Corporal punishment being the thing back then. Yeah, back then. Uh, but he, it wasn't often, but when it happened, it hurt. And, uh, it's funny the things you remember, isn't it? It is, or things you don't remember quite right. 
Um, I will put links to things we talked about on Hey Human Podcast so people can check out some of the books or some of the, yeah. you know, just the stuffs. Thanks, Ma. You're welcome. Say goodbye to the nice Bye, kids. everybody. <laughs> Hi, Paya. Hey, sweetie. Thanks for being on Hey Human. You're welcome. I feel like I've been validated. I am, in fact, a human, huh? You are, in fact. Well, I don't know, because rumors abound. Are you my real daddy? <laughs> well, only your mother knows for sure. That is true. Let us begin. Well, by all means. All right. Um, talk about your humble beginnings. By humble beginnings. Well, I was born in a log cabin on the prairie. <laughs> that wasn't you, Dad. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> Maybe in a previous life. Yes. If you believe in that kind of thing. Well, some of us only. <laughs> some of us in this room. Not so much. Some of us much, much. Anyway, anyway. I was born in New York City. My parents were immigrants. <laughs> one from Russia, one from Poland. My father came over. He was already well into adulthood. Oh. Remember, he had walked out of Russia uh, you know, after the Russian Revolution. He walked out of Russia? He did. He walked right across Europe. Yeah. Well, it took the trains, snuck around, did all sorts of shenanigans. He yes. spoke a lot of languages, so he, he was able to... Well, he picked up languages very readily. It's a real adventure story. But, uh, yeah, so he wound up sometime in the 20s. He came here once and got kicked out. To the United States? Yeah. New York? He sm uh, Well, I'm not sure how he... I forget now the route he took. And then he came back again and made it through that time. When you said he walked across Russia, do you do you literally mean across? Russia's big. Well, he, he comes from uh, Western Russia. Right. So, you know, the distance from there to Poland is not as much as if you're going from Siberia. But anyway, yeah. As the old saying goes. <laughs> you know, he didn't have any money, so he had to con his way across the continent. Is he a very bright man? Uh, extremely, uh, yes. My mother came in the, uh, when she was quite young, oh well, a teen, Uh oh, teenager. there's the phone. Yeah. Are you going to answer that, Dad? Oh, Mom, you got it. Okay, can we turn that off, maybe? Or turn it on quiet or something? I don't, yeah. This right. is big time podcasting, can Dad. Can you slow that down? Slowing it down? Well, Everything's it. relative. Grandma came when she was uh, much younger. Um, she was in her 20s, and Dad was in his 30s when they got married. That's so, pretty old for then. Well, what can I say? When I was born, as I remember it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, hmm. <laughs> I remember my birth certificate anyway. Uh, he was 39 and she was 29. Oh, okay. Oh, that's a big gap. Yeah. Had he been married before? Do Who? you know? Your father? I don't think so. Okay. So they met. They f in New York. They got married and started started their family. Well, in, in stages. Yes, because yeah. you and your brother are six and a half years apart. Yes, that seems to run in a family. It does, doesn't it? So you're born into the Bronx? Yeah. Ish? In the Bronx. In the Bronx. Not on the street or anything. Were you... <laughs> I don't think so, but I believe that the hospital was in the Bronx, but I don't remember. Yeah, you were born. <laughs> you didn't really pay attention, probably. Yeah, I don't remember from the birth certificate oh, okay. where it was signed off. 
So, y'all, you and, and grandma and grandfather were very poor. Yes. And you lived in a one... Well, remember, this was 1931. Did we, you remember the Depression? Well, I mean, I wasn't there, but yeah, I, yeah, do but you, I recall it. You recall, you've read about it. I have. Yeah. So, yes, uh, he was poor. His, my mother was poor. The next door neighbors were poor. Yes. You know, everybody on the street Keeping was up poor. with the Joneses was not so hard. <laughs> no, you try to avoid keeping down with them. Yes. Um, so that was the inclination, I suppose, was to study hard, to get out of that. That, what, what? that well, no. What happened was that when I was about oh seven years old, I think, I came down with what they finally diagnosed as rheumatic fever because they didn't know any better. Because I had a heart murmur. I'm sure at the time I had a heart murmur, which nobody ever bothered to listen to before. I have a heart murmur. So it's genetic. Yes, yeah. and I was about to say. People who get heart murmurs after rheumatic fever means that if you had a heart murmur after you had what sounded or looked like rheumatic fever instead of just the flu, they thought you had rheumatic fever. Ah, so they didn't, there was no test so, per se. Well, I don't know. Point is, I wound up in the hospital with some, also, well, it's a place for a seven year old, it's pretty scary. But after that was all said and done, they recommended that. Uh, we go out west for health reasons. Well, the sunnier climate. New York gets pretty wet and cold. I yeah, suppose. right. And uh, of course, my father couldn't go because he had to stay and work. So my mom and uh, my brother was just an infant in arms then. And so we took the train out west where a cousin met us at the train station in Los Angeles. He found a an apartment, a one-room apartment for the family to live in in Hollywood, right next, well, just a, a couple of doors down from our little movie studio, and on the street behind us was Columbia Pictures. That must have been so neat for a little boy. Well, yeah, I was uh, remembering at one time I came out of the house to go to school, and there was somebody leading a, a lion on a leash into the studio to make a picture. Really? And one time I came out and there was a gunfight going on behind the palm trees on the street. And, you know, the, the whole studio set up with the reflectors and all that. So, yeah, I mean, there were things. What did your dad do for work back then when you were, before he, he was left? He was a waiter. A waiter, okay. Yeah. He had originally studied to be an accountant. But, uh, of course, with the Depression and all that, he didn't have the money to stay in school, had to work. And uh, he wound up when he, you know, the only jobs available was... Waiting. Waiting, because there you, the only money you earned was from tips, you know. I have a recollection that, did he work at the Waldorf? Well, he worked all over the place. Okay, because I remember being little and having Grandpa tell me stories about working at the Waldorf. And, then the, and when you grow up, you think, was that a story I actually... Heard, heard yeah. or was that mixed in with other stories? And as well, you know, family stories get so yeah. But, <laughs> but as a waiter, he worked in all kinds of places. Okay. And, and when he was in, he was a good chef. I remember he would make extraordinary food for us. Yeah. Well, he 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 did that too. He once had a little diner oh. in, in L.A. And during the Second World War. He enlisted in the Merchant Marine, and 
shipped out as a cook, sometimes as a steward. While y'all, while you were little ones. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, he sailed uh, on a really dangerous trip. And he they went to the Russian trip, the North Atlantic Russian trip with in a convoy and all that. Is that because he spoke Russian along with all the other languages? No, it's because or? that's where the job was. Okay. You know, you go to the Union Hall and you sign up. Was they, that to make money for the family or for him was it also escapism or do you know? That's a very difficult question to answer. I don't know. Yeah. But it could have been any any one of a number of reasons. And what did Grandma do? During? She she worked in a uh, shirt factory in Los Angeles. A seamstress, right? A, yeah, she sewed buttons on shirts. Grandpa's gone off to fight in a war. Not to fight. He oh. was in a merchant marine. What? I don't... I don't understand the distinction. So that's a civilian, civilian sailor. Oh, I did not know this. Yeah, no, the Virgin Marine was, they had, on uh, many of the ships, they had gun, uh, naval gun crews, but the sailors were just like hiring a, a job, you know. Oh. But they were essential because they had to get these ships over to, for supplies to Russia and all that. They'd go over in these big convoys and, you know, try to... How are they not sitting ducks doing? They were. Wow. They were. In fact, the German U-boats prowled the North Atlantic and sank a lot of stuff. They sank. When a tanker was hit by a torpedo, it was just a great Fourth of July explosion. And the people on those tankers, they did not have much chance. Yeah. He usually was on a freighter. But even so, yeah. I mean, that's Scary. why they, they would have destroyers es escorting these things and the destroyers would run perimeter around the convoys. Did you hear from him during that time? Did he write letters or um, to keep you? If he did, I don't remember. Yeah. I, you know, I was only 10 years old when we got into the war and uh, you know, so no, I wouldn't remember. I'm curious at that time, especially during World War II um, and your side of the family being Jewish, was there any how did how was that being growing being in America knowing that that was going on? We didn't. I didn't know. I had no idea, and I'm not sure who knew while they, while it was going. It on. wasn't until they liberated the camps that they really understood. Well, or... I think there were that, that there were people in government who knew what was going on, but uh, we didn't hear about that. Uh, at least I don't remember any discussion, see anything in the papers or whatever. Was there anti-Semitism back in in L.A.? I mean, it's sort of the joke that L.A. is filled with Jewish people, so I don't know if that... Do you remember anything like that, or no, I, it was totally... I was never aware of anything anti-Semitic. I was aware of, of uh, bullying and so forth because I was a transplant in the middle of grammar school. You know, oh, elementary that's school. brutal, yeah. But uh, as far as the, the motivation for it, no, I had no idea. You're just a weird kid like the rest of us that yeah, get bullied. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you're highly intelligent. Did that? Did you ace elementary, high school, and, and know already what you wanted to pursue for college? I got fascinated in, with science fiction when I was in junior high school. Any people in particular? Any writers? Asimov and... All, all the writers, all the writers. Uh, and I also read all kinds of interesting natural history books and so forth. Uh, I remember reading 
uh, Paul DeCrive's book on the microbe hunters, which was about bacteriology and how they discovered disease, you know, causes of disease. And how old were you then when you read that? Oh, I don't know, somewhere an adolescent or, yeah. or pre-adolescent, somewhere in that range. Sure. Um, and I became a museum junior at the Los Angeles Museum of Invertebrate Paleontology. I used to go to classes there. We used to go out and hunt for for uh, fossils in the sandbanks and so forth. That's around. so cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. So How fun. So I was always interested in science and, you know, that was... That was it. And when I graduated from high school, I had good enough grades to apply to colleges. And uh, I used to go when I was in high school on Friday nights. We would, my brother and I, sometimes I would, I was my brother, I guess when he got a little older, would drive out to Caltech and go to the seminars, the public seminars there. And, uh, you know, listen to some of the great scientists of the time. Which uh, were astounding, the minds of that era. Yeah. Uh, we, we know, we would typically hear Linus Pauling talk about chemistry. And, what? Seriously? Yeah. That's so cool. And uh, never heard Feynman. Feynman was after my time there. Uh, you've read his book, so. I'm a fan of Feynman. Yes. Yeah, well, I have to show you before we leave. A whole bunch of books that you will just love. Do I get to take them home? It's kind of doubt it. They're e-books. <laughs> oh, they're e-books. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you were in high school and you were heading over to Caltech to check out the, all the. Until yeah, to to go to the seminars. That's amazing. I love that. You know, all the colleges still do that. By the way, listeners, every, I know that in Nashville. Right now, I'm in Seattle, sitting here with with my dad talking. But uh, and the University of Washington has great lecture series that are open to the public on all sorts of topics. You can see physicists and and biologists and yes. psychiatry and psychology yeah, yeah, and yeah. the whole shenanigans and art and history. It's fantastic. And Vanderbilt in Nashville also has this, right. um, as do co colleges all across sure. all across the United States and I'm sure globally. Um, and if you get a chance, I mean, they're free. It's just, it's wonderful. Yeah, it is. So you went to Caltech and MIT. Did you know what you, both you went? Caltech was undergrad and MIT was graduate. Yes. Did you know? You knew you liked science yes. upon graduation um, from high school. Of high school, yes. right? Um, what? How did you decide? Because I remember I asked you once if you could do it all over again. You said um, you would go into biology instead. Very likely, yeah. Why did you not choose that? And, I was fascinated with, with, of course, being a science fiction addict, with the whole idea of, you know, the physical universe and what, one thing and another. I got a scholarship to go to the Oak Ridge School of Reactor Technology, which the AEC, at that time the Atomic Energy Commission, sponsored promising students from universities and from uh, industry, both, to... Uh, go into, get into this new field of commercial nuclear power. And this is all about nuclear reactors and electrical power. So I went there to Oak Ridge, which is a real... Was that part of your of your Caltech studies? No, was that separate. was like going to a separate school for a master's degree. Okay, got it. it so you finished at Caltech with what degree? With a Bachelor of Science. Okay. 
Okay. Or as they call it, a BS degree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, spent a year at, in uh, Oak Ridge, which was about 20 miles west of Nashville, of Knoxville, mm-hmm. on the east end of The Tennessee. place where you love the weather. <laughs> yeah. And the summers were brutal, hot and humid. And the winters were wet and they weren't too bad but the summers were just obnoxious you'd go into the building where the classes were held and the air conditioning was really running full blast and it was very cool and quite dry and you went out of the building to get <laughs> lunch and it's like being hit with a two by four yeah yeah just awful and then after that i went to work at the Bettis Atomic Power Laboratory. I uh, worked in the uh, Admiral Rickover's program. And this was a time when all this stuff was pretty terrifying to the American public, right? There was a lot of... That came a little later. Now, at this time, this was in the uh, about 1959. Mm-hmm. They were promising electricity too cheap to meter and all that sort of stuff. But we were working on nuclear power for the naval reactor program. Mm -hmm. And I worked there for two years before I went to graduate school. And I was working on the shielding program, uh, the shielding research part things. Um, To keep from, what, melting down? No, no. The shielding is to protect people outside the reactor from the radiation. Your degree is in physics. My undergraduate degree. Okay, and then you went on to Oak Ridge, and that degree was... There's no degree. It was just a certificate of graduation. Okay, and you got a star (laughs) and a bill. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) No, you went for a... You got free rides, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, at at Oak Ridge, certainly, yes. Did you... Was your... You had a scholarship to Caltech, too, I thought. Uh, For part of the time I was there, yes. And MIT, you had a scholarship. Uh, uh, fellowships. Fellowships. Yeah. Same, that's the same idea. Yeah, I did, by and large, for most of the time. And what did you study at MIT? Nuclear engineering. Ah. So how did you get embryology in there? That was not till I came to teach at the University of Washington. Mm. You didn't want to put all your eggs in one basket? No! Oh! <laughs> uh, uh, Dad is not laughing at that incredibly funny joke. <laughs> Bob Rushmer was a professor at the U., had gotten people interested in a program of bioengineering Mm -hmm. in which engineers would team up with biologists Mm -hmm. to try to advance the whole ideas of that were at the time you know starting to grow really important in bioengineering and he introduced me to tom shepherd who was an embryologist and we got uh, we clicked We, we got along real well and i would spend uh, you know, a day a week or whatever in his lab uh, working on the embryos. He was a director of the Central Laboratory for Human Embryology, and we do all sorts of experiments on mammalian embryos. Not human, just mammalian. No, rats. Yeah, yeah. I would them. imagine that would be a no-no rats, even rats, then. Rats, rats, yeah, yeah. No. Rats, rats, rats. Yeah, rats. <laughs> but uh, we, this is, you know, embryos in the first several days of development. What were you trying to find? Really studying what causes malformations 
mm. in embryos and what embryos can do and can't do. And a rat's embryo is close enough to a human's that you could... At that age, yes. Ascertain what... At, at that age, yeah. They go through the same stages. The, you know, the only difference is how the coding and the genes work. And, to know, make you a rat versus a human? That's right. Or a rat human if... A rat versus a human or an elephant or, or a yes. shark or whatever. Right. Um, so we did experiments uh, on... Uh, on rat embryos so when I was there within the lab with him. And we published a few papers, and that was that was good. So uh, from my childhood, I recall you traveled, uh, you know, enough. <laughs> and I, I recall, after, you did, did you do Hanf go to Hanford a lot? Yeah, well, that was after I came to the University of Washington, and that was um, when I was still doing nuclear engineering. And I was on a committee, uh, met in Hanford periodically, that were sort of the oversight committee uh, for what the Battelle Memorial Institute, the Battelle National Laboratory in Richland, was doing to evaluate the effect of releases of radionuclides from the uh, Oak Ridge Mm. Excuse me, from the Hanford. the Hanford site, from all the developments for producing plutonium mm -hmm. for the nuclear weapons. In other words, the potential hazard to humanity around the... Well, the, because there were releases. Uh, the smokestacks did release some, you know, small amounts so that during reprocessing and one thing and another. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a big push to evaluate exactly what could be expected to have been the effect, because there was a lot of agitation going at the time of people claiming that they were downwind of the releases and were exposed to radiation and had suffered ill effects from that. And what this, the Battelle Institute was funded to do was to evaluate just how much re the releases were and what was known about the effects of these amounts of exposure and whether you could reasonably be uh, determined that they were the, the primary cause. And? Of, well, when it really came right down to it, it seemed very unlikely that the amount that actually was released and the spreading, so the amount that any individual got would be a major cause, although statistics are, you know, people are have different susceptibilities, mm -hmm. different uh, susceptibility, different genetic structure, and some people's people are much more susceptible to chemicals in the environment, to uh, radioactivity in the environment. But the radioactive releases didn't add all that much more than is naturally in the environment. There's uranium naturally occurring in the environment. There's sure radon and radon released from uranium in the ground. And you were a specialist, and I remember you doing a bunch of work with radon. Yeah, we we had a program at the U on radon, uh, which was interesting. I worked with a colleague in the physics department, two colleagues in the physics department, and we wrote some stuff about radon. And There's a lot of radon in Nashville. A it, lot, a lot. I mean, I assume there's radon everywhere, but it's high concentration. Yeah, well, 
It, it's extremely variable. In fact, almost to the point. It's where very rocky in Nashville. So one block can have a high reading, and the next block would be a low reading. So sure. It, it's extremely variable, and a great deal depends on the house is constructed. Yeah, brick is a big and thing. And what the ventilation in the house is like. Sure. All sorts of stuff. Yeah. Did do I recall you sitting on some sort of panel that? Um, you were trying to decide what to do with uranium once it was... That's waste waste disposal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's been... That's one of the main uh, disputes going on, controversies going on about what to do with uh, the radioactive waste from the commercial nuclear power and the military nuclear weapon program. Right. And that's still unresolved. What do you think people should do with it? <laughs> well, you... <laughs> greeting card. <laughs> there isn't much Ink. you can do about it uh, yeah. except to try to stabilize the waste, make it inert, and, you know, then, all right, where are you going to put it? Well, you. Uh, How do you make it inert? By uh, sealing it into uh, uh. glass logs or into grout, you know, concrete type of stuff, or <clears throat> put it into big steel tanks. And that's one of the problems. Back in the 1940s, 1950s, they put the liquid waste into great steel tanks, for example, in places like Hanford. Hmm. Tanks that were designed to last for 30 years and then be pumped out, made into inert form, and buried in the repositories, the waste repositories. Well, the controversy started and hasn't quit and the tanks are still there. The All they've done up till now, as far as I know, is transfer the waste in the single wall tanks into the big double wall tanks, which is another layer of protection. But those are aging too, so. <clears throat> but Is it just a lack of forward thinking on the when they began no, these projects? No, no And then you have things like uh, in Japan, when an earthquake hits or then you've got a whole nother ball of wax, right? To site a nuclear reactor requires a very detailed, very complicated, and very difficult risk analysis. And you try to evaluate all the risks you can think of. And if you can't think of a risk, or you consider a particular kind of risk as being so unlikely mm. that it can only happen every thousand years, you may tend not to really study that because to, f to prevent it would cost so much money that you couldn't afford it anyway. And so when that thousand-year risk shows up, <laughs> things Ahead happen. Ahead of schedule. Yeah, things happen. Yeah. Now, Fukushima was the, f uh, the result of plants were on the seacoast because cooling water is a problem to cool the waste heat from the plants. And if you're using seawater to uh, cool the plant, like you are in California, for example, mm -hmm. in places like, you know, there are, there are nuclear power plants situated along the coast in California. And you have an earthquake which causes a huge tidal wave which swamps your plant and knocks out electrical power and things like that. That's a risk which perhaps weren't, wasn't thought of being likely given the, the way that the plant was sited. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if 
That's no worse than why an airplane falls out of the sky because some bird flies into the engine and you don't have a screen in front of the engine, which will interfere with air intake. Mm. You know, so... A series of unfortunate events. A series of unfortunate events. Uh, the the uh, Russian reactor at... Uh, Chernobyl. At Chernobyl was a series of human error that caused that. The design of the plant was such that instead of being fail-safe when it lost its... began to overheat, it just got faster and faster and faster. This so is this may that, be that was a design error. It's is it did we help them with that? I imagine the Cold War would would when was that built, Chernobyl? I don't know my history on that. Well, I don't know when it was built. I'm trying to remember when it Chernobyl actually was what like ten, fifteen years ago. Longer than that, I think. Twenty years ago. Yeah. But anyway, that was unforeseen be, well. In retrospect it was because the design of the reactor was such that if you lost cooling, instead of the reactor shutting down, it speeded up, mm. which... Uh, yeah, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. Hotter and hotter and hotter, and it finally, as it were, blew its stack. Right. So... There's not much you can do to, s- to prevent that, they, I mean... They tried, but they, I guess, were not prepared in the control room for what was happening, either because they didn't have the right training or because when it happened, they didn't have the right people on duty. I'm not sure. I don't remember the details. This is the problem with all nations, you know, at even in cold wars with each other, because the the minds that can help build these things, well, we can help each other, the nations, it, it seems to get lost, right? The sharing of information well, based on fear of what the other may be capable of. I don't know. Remember, nations are competitors. They, they compete. Yeah, I understand. For resources. Still bums me out. I'm allowed to be bummed out. If you like. <laughs> Here's a question. Uh, um, a lot of my friends are worried about eating fish at this point after the Japanese incident. So, But I remember you and I talked about it and that you said that the fish going over the oceans and such, it decontaminates pretty well. You, is that true? There is natural radioactivity in the ocean yes. from dissolved radionuclides from the land. You are carrying radioactive potassium, as all living things are. Uh, you're radioactive. I'm radioactive. The fish, if they are radioactive, the place where they would really be enough to worry about would be right around the bay yeah. Uh, around where the reactor right. uh, melted down. But as that stuff goes out into the ocean, it dilutes more and more and more. And so the concentration in fish are lower and lower and you lower. Have more, mercury is a bigger worry, probably. Well, mercury is because it accumulates in the fat. There are some radionuclides that accumulate in the bones. People don't usually eat fish bones. Um... And you only eat the flesh of the fish, the muscle of the fish. Most people don't eat the the insides, you know, the, the viscera and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> so the risk of contamination from stuff that grows in the sea is probably 
red tide, domoic acid poisoning, paralytic shellfish poisoning. You want to be careful about eating shellfish when the domoic acid levels are high and states on the coast usually post warnings about that. Uh, you want to be careful about fish like tuna and so forth that are long, long-lived, that eat fish, that eat fish, mm-hmm. that ac- accumulate mercury, or, you know. Because you are what you eat. Well, you're exposed <laughs> to what you eat, certainly. Yes, yes. But mercury is a big problem for developing fetuses. Uh, you'd have to eat an awful lot of fish to have the mercury poisoning, although there are places in freshwater, Montana, for example, or Wyoming, rather, has uh, publishes a list, the, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, publish a list of freshwater fish you should not eat, at least not much of, but not eat, and f- fish you should eat if you're going to eat fish. Trout's okay, right? Uh, yeah, for the Good, most part. Good, because I like trout. I also love salmon. Yeah, well, so, you you know, you just got to... Of course, it won't be long before fish is so expensive that you're not going to be able to afford it anyway. Yeah. Uh, or emptying out the oceans pretty quickly of fish, that's well, for sure. Well, that and, you know, the food chain is getting screwed up with global warming and <gasps> with with acid acidification of the oceans. Which is caused by? Dissolving carbon dioxide, which is, produces carbonic acid, which lowers the pH of the ocean, which causes things like corals to die and this sort of stuff. Yeah. And evolution is too slow, I suppose, to come up with a fish that can combat that in our generations. Well, fish, fish can tolerate it a lot more than corals can, but still. Yeah. You know, we, I don't know for, for a fact how much the lower pH affects the development of fish eggs or what have you. Sure. It's changing the sexes of fish. I know that. Well, that's chemicals, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the chemicals are the... uh, All the um, unused drugs and everything we pee out and ends up into the waters. My friend who's a biologist and I just had this conversation about amphibians and, and fishies changing their their sex mid midlife in response to some, the chemicals in the water. Some fish do that do oh, that even before. Sure. Don't seahorses do that? Or seahorses can no, seahorses, have their own babies. Is that what it is? Seahorses gestate their own babies. The female seahorse has really figured out the problem of pregnancy. So she sticks the eggs she produces onto the male and is he carries them in his pouch to, ah, to lay hatch. That's a good move. Well, <laughs> I, it was interesting to speculate where in evolution this idea arose. but It's uh, the ultimate hold my purse, I'm going shopping. Yeah, right. <laughs> interesting. So you had a long career as a scientist. As an engineer. As an engineer and a scientist. I mean, you are a scientist. Well, yes. You always self-deprecation. Uh, well... I got into biological sciences, embryology, rather late. All right, if you could have a dinner party with three folks from the various fields of which you've studied, from undergrad on up. Alive or dead? Yes, either. We'll prop them up. We'll reanimate them for your behalf. Um, Three or four, who would you pick? Who would you want to have dinner with? Well, Carl Sagan. Yes! (laughs) 
<laughs> R- Richard Feynman. Yes, those are my two. <laughs> um, I'll make the cocktails. <laughs> yeah, a guy like maybe Max Tegmark. Who's that? I'll show you later. I'll show you his books. Okay. Well, explain to them. They R- they can't see who who. Is. Oh well, he's a physicist who's written some really great far out books about the multiverse. Oh, cool. And uh, about quantum mechanics, about stuff that it, it almost reads like science fiction. It's it's really so great. Uh, Fantastic. I would say he's a great writer. He really writes fun stuff and uh, the difference between someone with 120 IQ, 130 IQ, 140 IQ means they can you know seem very smart but they're really great the- scientists. I think theoretical physicists had to be way out there because yeah, the they, things they, have they to come be, up with. They, they, have, they are in a range where you really can't measure it. It really doesn't make any sense. Intelligence tests mean nothing. I, and there are all kinds. I mean, uh, Hawking okay. has written some great books, and there are others. I mean, but dinner party. All right, let's let's. Oh, okay, so we got Feynman. We've got what's his name? Max Tegmar. Yeah, Max Tegmar. We've got Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan, and I've got you know people who've written some of the books I've been enjoying reading. Like, yeah, I don't have memory. But who's one other person that you'd like to have to dinner? Oh, um, well. Uh, let me think. Any females on the list? Oh yeah, there is one, Lisa. Uh, uh, Lisa. Uh, I can't remember her last name now. She wrote one of these books on. Uh, uh, she's a particle physicist. Cool. And she wrote a great book on particle physics and the multiverse and so forth. Okay, let me look it up while you're talking. Yeah. Lisa. Is that E-E-S or I-S-A? L-I-S-A. Lisa Randell. Yes, I was just going to tell you. Lisa Randell is the physicist. She's she's a good-looking woman. Yeah. Anyway, um, Lisa Randell. So Lisa Randell, Carl Sagan, uh, Feynman. Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman, who is so dreamy. Dead, you know, but so dreamy. And who was the other? Max Tegmark. Oh, that's Max Tegmark. So... That's your dinner party. You retired, and then you started writing. Were you? Always, I, know, I remember you wrote poetry, right? So you've, always, I, I, you've always dabbled in, on the, the other side of your brain. When I was in high school, they taught me to write in a class that they made everyone take. <clears throat> and you had to write an essay every week uh-huh. and so forth. And I guess that stood me in good stead of learning some of the craft of writing. Mm-hmm. Stood me in good, set, in good stead when I applied to Caltech because one of the four-hour exams, there were four of those, one of the four-hour exams was writing a four-hour essay on some topic, that, a set of topics they chose. I wrote on the sighting of airports in the future. Mm. <clears throat> See, that's where reading science fiction comes in handy. Mm-hmm. Because most of the ideas, or a lot of the suggestion of ideas, came from some of the ideas I had read in science fiction. And, you know, I knew the difference between a subject and a verb and all that, and mm-hmm. how to write. So, And then when I wrote my papers, you know, that was useful because my papers generally were in English instead of in the sort of stuff that a lot of scientists write. Latin. 
No. <laughs> you didn't write in Latin? No, just in really tortured English and oh, jargon yeah. and stuff. So you write fiction. When I retired, I started, I took some writing classes in the, in the, uh, uh, what do you call it, program at the University of Washington for you know, people. For emeritus folk? No, 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 for public. Uh, oh, just open, extend, yeah, extended, sure. Extension program. Yeah. Started, I wrote a couple of mysteries. They were very good. I enjoyed them. And uh, then I was at a Pacific Northwest Writers Association meeting. Oh, some, gosh, I guess it's been like 10 years ago now, maybe, or thereabouts. Everything is 10 years ago for you. Have you noticed that? No. Well, it all happens memory. all <laughs> My memory. Yeah, I was at a Pacific Northwest uh, Writers Association monthly meeting, mm -hmm. and the speaker was telling us the kind of attitude we should have about writing. He says, "Don't, don't be, you know, put down by what other people are saying. If you're writing, just sit down and write." He said, "For example, I'm going to put a couple of words on the whiteboard here, and I want you to take ten minutes and write." No, just write. Just forget the outside world. Just write. Yeah. So he wrote on a blackboard, woman <laughs> and pirate. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that sounds great. So I started writing and wrote about a chapter of a female pirate, you know, attacking a ship and all that sort of stuff. And that sort of got me started. I thought, well, why not? So I started writing, and I started writing the first book of Margaret, uh, uh, Outrageous Fortune. It was the introduction of this young girl, an 18-year-old, who starts out to become a governess at an er in an earl's home to teach the, the, his young children. And that just flowed out. I mean, I wrote, I must have written 60,000, 70,000 words just without really sort of channeling the characters. And then I just kept going, so now I've I've written four 60 to 70,000 novels for Margaret's Adventures, and I'm working on the fifth one. I've got the first one out as a self-published ebook on on Amazon. Uh, Amazon. It's called Margaret Outrageous fortune, and I'll have links to it on my Hey Human podcast page. Okay, well, thank you. Yeah. Are you enjoying the process of writing these books? Very much. Yeah, I, I can't seem to get away from it. Yeah. I know, I have to call you every once in a while and tell you to get up and walk around. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> the thing is, is that a lot of it goes on in my head without, right, they say you should just sit down and write. If it's gibberish, you can edit it. I don't work that way. I mean, I run, I run into a problem. I can't write. And things go on in the head, you know. Sometimes when I can't go to sleep, I'm thinking about sure. these things. So maybe in an alternate universe, you know, you are a, a famous book writer. Well, it would have to be a really alternate one. Yeah. <laughs> Do you believe in the multiverse? Belief isn't the issue. That sounds like religion. The conclusions, the implications of the mathematics, where the mathematics of uh, general relativity and quantum mechanics are right now imply that it is not inconsistent with the mathematics to have 
multiverses and more dimensions than the four we know. In fact, in some cases, you can't solve the equations without assuming many more dimensions. And we have things like string theory, in which we've got a bunch of dimensions all wrapped up in infinitesimally thin strings. There are only, apparently only four extendable dimensions, two, three of direction, you know, back and forth, left to right, up and down, and one of time that, that form the space-time continuum. And those are the ones with, you know, that extend out to, presumably it's... Infinite. Well, there's so, there is <laughs> some debate about whether they existed before the Big Bang or what they call the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And it was in the Big Bang where some of the, the theory seems to indicate they formed all these different universes mm -hmm. in what's basically a, a, an expanding something which sure. carries them. It reminds me of, do you remember the Superman movie where uh, uh, there's the three other, they're like evil Superman, they're that strong, Zod, and the two hench, there's a henchwoman and a henchman. I think I've heard of it, I don't think I've ever seen it. Oh, I bet you have. It's old, but I, I bet you have. Um, It's from way back. Anyway. Well, that goes back to the old uh, thing, you know, even remember the Star Trek episode in which they ran into this race, which... Half and half or, people? Or half yeah. black, half white. Also. Yeah. yeah. Or blue. They were blue and white, weren't they? No, were were they black and, and white? black and white. Um, and there were two kinds. One which was black and white on this half, the other was black and white the other way. And they didn't like each other. They didn't like each other. Right. They were mirror images. Right. Which is great. I I mean, Gene Roddenberry was so ahead of his time with as far as political and socio. Yeah. yeah. But um, in this Superman movie, there's they're in the, um, the ice house, um, his... The fortress of Sol fortress of solitude, and uh, they're they're in a big fight or whatever, and uh, and Zod is looking in the reflection of the ice, and it's fracturing. So you see all these different versions of him. I kind of think of it like that in its own way. Well, you could, people think about whatever way they want for whatever it is they're trying to think about. <coughs> well but in said. case of in case of of the physicist, they're dealing with what are the solutions like for these equations, which are the best equations we know at the moment to describe reality. And the solutions suggest certain things. For example, in some of the, <coughs> the equations suggest time can run backwards as well as forwards. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, and, and things can, black holes connect to make wormholes and all that sort of stuff. And uh, there's all kinds of, of stuff that we used to read about in science fiction, one thing and another. But unfortunately, along with, yes, these things can happen, doesn't mean we can make any use of them. Sure. Because by the time you got into a black hole, the gravitational force would be so heavy at your feet before your head got there that you kind of get pulled in half. So, uh, you know, that's from looking at it from the outside. What it will look like from the inside as you're going through is another question entirely. Uh, you know, and time distortions and so forth in, in gravitational fields or in acceleration fields. and It's know. so yummy, all of it. Yeah, well, it's all what the possible solutions of the equations suggest.
all that's all well and good, but there's no way to sort it out until you can do the experiment. Mm -hmm. uh, as yet, I don't think anybody's figured out how to set up an experiment that could really test an alternate universe. Because hmm. we're pretty well stuck in the one we're in. Speak for yourself. <laughs> well, uh, in any event, you, if you're interested, these books are great, and I expect you will be. Uh, they're written for, quote, the layperson yes. in mind, but it isn't just any layperson, because sometimes you got to remember what was said yes. 10 chapters ago. I, I love reading about neuroscience, but when I read uh, Dr. Resch's book, it was it, I, I would get to a section. I'd be happily moving along through the book, and then I'd get to a section, and I'd be like, oh, man. So then I'd have to go look things up. And But, I mean, that's that's a wonderful thing. You, I, you can if it's a hardback. It's kind of a nuisance when you're reading an e-book. Oh, well, yes, I suppose. Because it's hard to get back. I, I haven't made the... I, I like books. I like the way they smell. I like holding them. I have not leapt into the... I do like audio. I'm okay with people telling me a story as yeah. I'm driving or, or whatnot. But, yeah. Thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. Daddy? Yes. I love you like you were my own father. Yes, well, I'm glad to be loved like I was your own father. Bye, everybody. Bye.